Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Well, this sucks. Hey, where did you see that buck? You sent a picture to me yesterday. That's in a new spot. I started hunting. I um, I went up and looked for him last night, but I don't know. I couldn't find him, but I might have got blown out of there. Had some bad wind. Yeah. He didn't see me. I know that, but I heard uh, I heard a deer puffing away at me. So I don't know. Our season closes here pretty quick. Closes on the 20th. Is that Tuesday? Oh, That's does. Tuesday. Yeah. Yeah. We're yeah, finally starting to get some weather down here, and so the bucks are starting to run, you know. It's been really warm, you know. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then I looked at the dadgum forecast just a minute ago because it's it's getting down in the mid-40s at night and up in the 50s during the day. Of course, for South Texas, that's cold. You know? yeah. <laughs> and Monday morning, we're looking at 19 degrees. It happens once a year down here. It's going to freeze, and all these knuckleheads – want these tropical plants in their dang yard and they all die you know yeah. that's just all there is and they put them back in again you know <laughs> we're attrition yeah, yeah it's funny. just it's crazy yeah my well, wife will have dragging them blew a plants in and everything tonight dead gummy yeah well we've had about a foot of snow now for almost two months so wow yeah we get yeah. uh and we're not we're in the warm part of Canada. So we're like oh, yeah. I'm right I'm right along the border here. We're I'm in the warmer one of the warmer places in Canada. Yeah, you're warmer mm. than me. Yeah. yeah we're Where not far. From? I'm from we're both from your beast. Yeah, 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 we're both British from British Columbia. Columbia. Yeah. It's just mm. different different parts. Like I'm just in a different, slightly different mountain range. We're actually uh -huh. as the bird flies, we're really not that far apart. Wow. But it's crazy how one valley to the next um will change temperature wise well yeah. pete's pete's basically at the 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 foothills of the rockies so oh okay yeah i'm yeah, in the more desert area of canada yeah literally it's like that area in montana uh the bozeman area because it's it's surrounded on three sides by mountains yeah and they call it banana belt <laughs> you know, right. in montana. but uh believe me it gets cold there too i've been there before yeah i bet that was uh that was a hell of a place up there. Yeah. The man that was trying to take over the King Ranch back in the 70s, they booted him. It's in my story. It's yeah. him and uh, his half-brother, B. Johnson. Well, they kicked him out, and they gave him each $250 million and said, go try to figure it out, big boy, you know. And, of course, both of them end up dying, you know, from alcohol and broke. They ticked all that money off. But that one of them, Bobby Shelton, bought four ranches in Kerrville and 175,000 acres in Bozeman, Montana. And uh, it's just a remarkable place. God, it was beautiful. Wow. And when he went bankrupt, you know who bought the dang place? 
uh, Ted Turner. No shit. Really? Oh, no. And he turns it into dances with wolves, buddy. There's not an interior dance. They've pulled everything out. He got nothing but buffalo in there. Oh, yeah. And then they told him some years ago, he's got too damn many buffalo. And he said, no, I just don't have enough land. And he bought 600,000 acres in eastern Montana and moved a big herd over there. Oh, yeah. 1.1 million acres in New Mexico full of buffalo. That's amazing. I I like to see them come back. I wish there wasn't any fences where they could just roam like they used to. Yeah, that'd be nice. It'd be different land. Yeah. 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 Something else. Yeah. Even, uh, yeah, well, up here we got a lot of big ranches. The Douglas Ranch, it's huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it had been in place for a long time. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been in place for a long time. They, yeah, they're pretty uh, they're pretty sticky about their land up there at the Douglas Ranch, kind of yeah. like what you're used to when you're a younger man. Well, that's that's what's been so exciting for me wanting to talk to you is because of the dichotomy mm-hmm. between British Columbia, you know, your province and our state. Yeah, I think about this. I mean, you guys, there's about five million people in British Columbia. Yeah, 94% of your country is public land. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, now flip that over to Texas. Well, there's 30 million people, 95% of it's private. You know, six yeah. times many people trying to hunt on the same little section that you can't hunt on. Yeah. You see what I mean? it's just turned into a playground for the for the wealthy, you know. Yeah, it blows your mind when you think about that. Like you think about 30 million people trying to access, well, and they're not all hunters, but the percentage of hunters, you guys probably have more hunters in Texas than we do in Canada. I know like when I talked to, when I was talking to John Stallone, we were going through some of the numbers and it was amazing how many more hunters are in the U.S. than in Canada. So I wouldn't be shocked if you told me that there was more hunters in Texas than there are in Canada. And you get all Mm -hmm. those people trying to access one all those hunters trying to access, you know, a small portion of, of public land. It, uh, yeah, it must be tough. Oh, it really is. I was on that podcast twice with, uh, Christian Babcock hunters advantage, uh, but young guys and, but they're public land hunters, man. I've got a world of respect for those guys. They live in Texas, but guess what? They hunt in Oklahoma and Kansas. Yeah. Yeah. Where they can go up there and get some public land, you know, to hunt. There's just not any in Texas, you know. Yeah, and it, it's nice that in the U.S. you can just go from pro- or state to state. In British Columbia, it's a little more difficult. There is rare instances where you can be, like, in British Columbia and go to Saskatchewan. You can hunt black bear and, and stuff like that. But, like, we can't just go to Alberta and hunt deer. We can't go to Saskatchewan and hunt deer. Um, the, the process is a lot different. So, uh, But oh. in the state, states, it's a lot. I know it's a lot easier for you guys, so that's definitely nice because – yeah, oh, yeah. Those, those jets just come flying in here and bring those billionaires in and turn them loose out there on those ranches. You know? So explain that a little bit. What so these ranches they're selling deer hunts to? They just sell deer hunts to, and you're allowed to hunt on as long as it's on their their land. They're allowed to do whatever they want, kind of thing. Is that how well, it that's works? Kind of what happened, you know, and that's kind of why I quit doing what I did in 1983 when they changed the law. Uh, prior to that, ever since Texas was a republic, uh, it said the flora and the fauna of, you know, the republic belonged to the citizens. Well, in 1983, they changed that. And they said, no, it belongs to the landowner. And uh, it really bailed them out. Because if you remember in the early 70s like that, uh, the oil field was declining. You know, that petroleum money that was coming in was not coming in like they've been used to. Right. And uh, it just turned it into a cottage business. You know, right, right. And, but you look at, say, the King Ranch right there where my mama lives. And, you know, I still got her. She's 100 years old. Wow. And she lives in the shadow of the Santa Gertrudis Division. And that's about 280-some thousand acres. Well, 100,000 of it is leased by Jerry Jones, owns the Dallas Cowboys. Oh, yeah. 50,000 acres is uh, leased by Peter Holt. He owns the San Antonio Spurs. So what's their purpose for leasing it? What do they do with it? They bring their ball players, the celebrities, rich benefactors down there and let them shoot a big deer. No wow. shit. That's, that's, <laughs> that's the whole purpose of it. Oh, yeah. Wow. And, you figure, and this was probably, oh, at least 15, 16 years ago. I know then they were paying $10 an acre for trespass privileges. Well, that's a million dollar bill for Jerry Jones. But, you know, I, that's a drop in a bucket to that billionaire. It don't mean nothing to him. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure it's a write-off anyway to some. Oh, yeah. They, you know, their accountants will be like, oh, you guys could do whatever you want. I got this. Even since I was a, you know, a young man when I landed there in 1972, um, it was always been just, you know, the privileged, the wealthy, celebrities, movie stars, stuff like that could go out there to the King Ranch and hunt, you know. But, you know, you wasn't going to pay your way on there. Well, now it's a little bit different. Because the ranch is really not ran like a ranch anymore. It's a corporation. I'm literally, I'm closer to headquarters in Houston than I am down there by the ranch. Really? Huh. Oh, yeah. I just said that running W, the brand, it stands yeah. for Wall Street now. <laughs> no, there's no doubt about it. I mean, they uh, they literally, they make more money off their turf grass, sod grass business than they do beef cattle. Yeah. Well, I mean, yes, you think I, of that ranch, they named a truck after <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, it's just it. You know, you, you can see them everywhere. You can go to Minnesota and see a King Ranch Edition truck. Yeah. I mean, I mean it's, you know, they've. Well, I mean, they've, even up here, there's, that's one of the high oh, end yeah. trucks is the King Ranch. Uh, yeah. It's a, I mean, it's, you know, it's very popular and stuff, but that's the way I wrote my book because I was hoping people outside of South Texas would get it. Of course, they have. And if I didn't tell a little bit of history and try to get that in perspective, it's hard for people to get their head around that. Oh, absolutely. Especially for guys like us. Yeah. Like yeah, guys like us up hundred, here, we we have no idea. Yeah. A couple hundred acres. And so I wanted to do it that way and, and, and tell a little bit of the history up front. And then those stories that started, well, in 1910, the hunting stories, you know, and, uh, and my great uncle Zenas and great, great uncle Zenas was without a doubt, my Daniel Boone. That man was something else. And um, he taught my stepdaddy, and then my stepdaddy taught me. But in in my game, and I want you all to know this very much, because in my day, hunting, outlaw hunting on that King Ranch like that was just a game, fellas. It was, it was literally, it was a game. The fine was less than $100. You couldn't get a lease for that. Yeah. Uh, and so the, reason it was like, the reason it was like that, Texas has got 257 counties. And up until 1983, when they passed that law, those counties wouldn't listen to Austin, Texas Parks and Wildlife, the central agency. They said, well, this is a county affair. We take care of it, the JP court. So you've got well over half of the counties just told, you know, yeah. Texas, yeah. we'll handle it. Just go on. Yeah. On these little old counties and stuff, everybody knew everybody. They get you in there. So, well, you've been a bad boy, yes. Sir. Well, that'll be seventy-five dollars. You know, okay, don't do it again. Yes, ma'am. They go right out there and do it again. You know, that's it, eh? Yeah, and that's the way it was. But me, you know, I had a little pride in what I did, and I was taught by the best, and I was bound to determine. You know, I was going to retire from this game undefeated, and I did. Yeah, <laughs> I went ten years, and I pulled a hell of a bunch of them off. And, um, but you know, it's like, like Charlie and I, y'all were looking at the pheasant a minute ago. Well, mm -hmm. that's a, that's a Prince of Poacher's mount right there. Yeah. You know, he, he mounted that pheasant for me. Oh, he did. Eh? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, we were, we were talking, uh, day before yesterday, we talked pretty near, every, you know, every other day. That's what he said. He, he said that when he hangs the phone up, he goes, I'll talk to you in a day or two. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then you get that phone call, you know, and yeah, well, we've been yeah. good friends for 45 years. But just like Texas and, and British Columbia, we were polar opposites, too. Yeah, right. Charlie was a pure driven trophy hunter, and he took it to a level that nobody would do. I'd really I mean, that 27 day hunt he went on. I don't think SEAL Team Six could have hung with him. They'd have rung the bell, said, hey, let me out of here, you know. But I, you know, I was a meat hunter. Subsequently, you know, we didn't count them. We ate them, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And Charlie, I think his number is 116, you know, yeah. he, with the guys he took and him and there is what he took off. You know, without trying to sound arrogant, I probably pulled 85 or 90 off the first five years before Charlie got there. So a lot I, of deer. I, I'm sure I've taken That's more. Well, hell, I bet you I drunk 25 for Ellis Mayfield the first year. I was going to get rid of that half-breed Indian. He was driving me crazy, you know. <laughs> that guy had a bloodlust, just wouldn't stop. But that's the guys I learned from. And it was, like I said, back then it was just a game. Yeah. But when, when they changed the law, I said, that's it. You know, I had my eyes on this pretty little girl, and I wasn't about let let her get away from me. And I said, it's time for you to stop. And I did. I just planted my pivot foot and I quit. 
I got myself married, went on, you know, and just had a professional career and raised my family, my two girls and sent them to college. And, you know, now I got five grandkids and I just get to tell these stories. Yeah. And, did you ever want, did you ever worry about, uh, what might happen, um, putting this book out that you're incriminating yourself at all? Oh, no. Well, no. first of all, I mean, when I did this, it was a, a C class misdemeanor, right. less than a hundred dollars. So they want to come get me. Come on. You know, mm -hmm. they're not going to say anything to me. They know it's the truth. You know, mm -hmm. they just, they just want me to go away, you know, yeah. but again, there's nobody on those big ranches anymore. Like it used to be, right. There used to be a Lord God almighty over there, you know, for years and years, it was Bob Clayburgh and Bob Clayburgh probably did more to grow that ranch than anybody. He was on a plane buying up land. He's the one that got him in that side grass business and stuff like that. And, and I mean, that's a booming business for him now. It's crazy. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Do you think there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of that poaching that goes on in those ranches still? No, not near. No, nothing like it used to be. No. You got to understand when I was doing that, there was no cell phones. Mm -hmm. You know, there was no motion sensors. There was no yeah. night vision goggles. No. Hell, I, I did a little YouTube video when I got in the truck with Fred one night. He wanted to get some meat. And I looked down there and I said, what the hell is that damn CB you got there? He said, that ain't a CB. I said, what is it? He said, that's a dang police scanner. I said, what's it do? And he said, well, I'll show you. Turn it on. He had the crystals for everybody. Game wardens, King Ranch security, highway patrol, sheriff's department. And you could sit there and hear what they were talking. I told Fred, I said, hell, this is cheating. You know, I mean, they ain't even got a chance now, you know. <laughs> Jeez. Like I said, it was just a game back then, you know, yeah. but it, we did it for our meat. Yeah, yeah, for and, sure. So so when you were growing up, is this something that was passed? Like, how did you get... How did you get into outlaw hunting? Well, I, like I said, I hunted all my life since I was as far as I can remember. But when you started, when you, when you say well, I that. I came back from California, you know, I, in, right. in the book, I tell a story and I got cut pretty damn bad. I mean, real bad. And I, they should have gave me blood out there. And I landed on my mama's couch and I was there for geez, six, eight weeks trying to get my strength back. And that's when she had met the man that's going to be my stepdaddy, Wayne Hornsby. And he come over there and that man was a storyteller and he just entertained me every night and telling me about all this stuff he was doing. And I couldn't get wait get well to go with him, you know. <laughs> and, and it was like I said, it was just a way of life back then, you know. And uh, and I don't recommend anybody even thinking about doing it anymore because it's criminal now. I mean, I, like I said, you know, a hundred dollar fine, you get embarrassed. Mm -hmm. Well, today that same thing. They'll put you in prison for 10 years. Holy smokes. They'll really? 10 years? They'll take your gun, your light, your knife, you, you know, your rifle, and they'll follow you the rest of your life. You so see, why are they, so um, why are the why are the uh why is it so severe? Like, do these landowners feel like they own these deer? Oh like, no. That's exactly what 1983 did. That's what the Wildlife Conservation Act did. It's what I was trying to tell you in the beginning. No, they said that those deer now belong to the landowner. Now, oh, the deer themselves. Oh, they they say they belong to the state, but if a guy goes in there and pays twenty five thousand dollars to shoot a whitetail, does the state get the money? Hell no, the landowner does. Yeah, you see what I mean? Oh yeah, well I mean like. And then they'll you know, make it worse. To make it worse, then they started throwing them high fences up everywhere. And I mean Texas really? is. Oh, Texas is mostly high fenced anymore. So when you you're, say high fence, you're talking like the big six foot plus fences where you could proof. they can't go over it. Yeah, they're trapped then. I call those ranches mena traps. You know, oh shit. I didn't I had no idea that it was like that. Oh yeah. It, it, you know, but that's the, what it's that's what it's come. It's become a money game. That's a shame. So should I should I, I assume I know enough about it, you know, because I know the players. That's what a guy taught me one day. He said, son, once you learn the players, then you can play the game. Right. Well, in 1983, they they changed the law at the same time. I mean, the same year. And you can look it up. It's all over the Internet. They, they started this uh, Operation Game Thief. Well, there's billboard signs and advertisements on television. These outlaws are ruining the deer population. You know, you got to turn them in and we'll pay you money if you turn them in. Well, it started mm -hmm. right there. But see, what they did was they were controlling the narrative. It, it had nothing to do, you know, with conservation. There's more deer down there now than there ever was. We didn't hurt them. Matter of fact, we was probably doing them a favor, thinning some of them out. 
you know, because yeah, yeah. buddy, I've seen my share of monster old deer that have gone down and get pulled down with coyotes. And they ain't nothing worse to me than that. Didn't right. see a beautiful trophy like that lost that somebody could have. And I found several of them out there hoofing around on foot and hunting and having a big time. So are they all like high fence, you know, typically with high fence areas, you get a lot of like bad breeding and stuff. And then their horns get all like, they're not natural looking. They're just kind of a mess. Is there a lot of that down there? Oh, Bubba, it's, it's beyond that. It's way beyond that. I could send you a picture of a deer that I saw at the Texas Trophy Hunters Association that this ranch was bragging about it. It was a three and a half year old deer. He's over 30 inches wide. Oh. He's got 18 inch tines. He's got those and drops and everything everywhere. And that didn't happen naturally. I'm promising you. Yeah. So they're yeah. feeding them, they're feeding them all kinds of they're minerals. Feeding, and they're all bringing that. in northern deer genetics or doing all kinds of yeah. and you can tell, you know, Charlie and I were laughing about that the other day. We seen one that was blowed up there, and it's got these big old round bulbous points and drops all over them. Well, they do that by whopping that deer in that in them antlers when he's young, still in velvet to get that to grow. Really? It doesn't look natural, you know. No, it, it doesn't. It looks to me, I don't like that look at all. I, I, just, yeah, just, I yeah. wouldn't give 10 cents to kill one of them, but that's what's left for these people, you know. Uh, yeah. All our hunter gatherers, you know, it's 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 ingrained in us, and people still want to do it, even if they're city slickers, if they want to go hunting, but to do it in Texas, it's going to cost you some money, you know. Yeah. And then what's the hunting like inside a high fence when the damn animal will come to the truck? Cause he thinks he's going to get fed and they got tags in the ear to tell you how much that one costs. If you shoot it, yeah, well, that's, me, not, that's I, not hunting partner. That's harvesting. That's shopping. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah that's, exactly. that doesn't mean anything to me. Like, I mean, each to their own, I'm not going to yeah. knock anybody for their, for their choices, but to me, it's the blood, sweat and tears that goes into the hunt. It's the, it's the adventure from start to finish that it takes to do that. And if you get something that you're proud of and you want to hang on your wall, absolutely. Oh, yeah. But to me, that that mount that you're putting up, the the set of antlers that you find on the ground, it's the memories that were created in the process. It's oh, not, yeah. it's it's not just what's hanging on the wall there. There, it's it's the whole story that goes behind it. That's what I want. Oh yeah. Well, that's what true hunters want. I I'm kidding. You. I was just talking Charlie day before yesterday. We was talking about old George Moore, and George Moore was if there was anybody who was wilder than Charlie, it was him. Okay. And they had been in the, I think he said the Piloncia, the Red Nunley or something over there for three days, and they had to get out. And he'd, he'd rattle a monster up, just seen him, couldn't get a shot at him. And they all got in the car, and they drove to Freer, and then he said, how much money y'all got? And I, Charlie, I got about $12. And this guy, well, I got about 10 He said, okay, I got a little bit. Pull over that zippy mark. And he went in there and bought him some Spam and some tortillas and whatever. He said, turn around, take me back and drop me off. I'm going to kill a damn deer. You see what that man was one, you know, and he stayed back in there five more days trying to find that daggum deer, you know, and that's, that's hunting. You know, that's a real hunt. Yeah. Man, I did a lot of that road hunt with those old timers. They couldn't, they couldn't do it anymore, you know, and they like to sit in that car and, you know, that mobile hunting blind and sip a little whiskey and you spot them old deer and shoot them and I'd bail out there and go get them. You know, it was just a lot of fun, you know, but uh, my, my best fun that I had is when I go off over the fence by myself and I, I, I pick places where people didn't think I was at. And I jumped the fence in the dark in the morning and uh, going there with my pack, you know, and however I was hunting with a rifle or a bow, of course I don't hunt with a rifle anymore at all, but uh, get in there and rattle your buck up, you know, get him killed. And then I'd suck him underneath some brush and, I'd spend the rest of the afternoon boning that meat out and getting it put in sacks and stuff. And I'd make me a cup of soup, a little lunch, you know, take me a nap, wait till dark, and then pack that meat out of there, you know. And and I just, the reason I never got caught is because I never told anybody. These people talk too much. Yep. And, Loose and lips, sink ships. Oh, yeah. You go to that taxidermy shop and you hear all them outlaws in there talking about where they've been and what they were doing. And I'm just shaking my head, you know. And you got to understand, it was a long time. You know, when I quit in 83, Charlie didn't get caught till 98. Hell, that was 15 years later. And that, <laughs> that finally got a lot more serious, you know. But he was injecting that pure D 
trophy whitetail heroin, that stuff's tough, boy. You get addicted to that, it'll mess you up. <laughs> yeah. That's all you want to think about. Yeah. It's funny, even to this day, like I've got a, uh, I'm friends with a couple of our conservation officers out here. And I think it was just last year we were talking about, uh, they're few and far between. Our governments don't put a lot of money into the enforcement aspect or anything mm-hmm. really into our wildlife. It's actually, it's horrible. But anyway, they were talking about how many people actually sink themselves because everybody has to film it on their phone. They have to post it on social media and they don't even realize that they've literally, even if, and I'm not even talking about poaching or anything like that. Maybe just something that they don't realize is against the rules or regs or whatever, something mm-hmm. simple where they got it, what, how big it is, the species of it. Yeah. And they'll post it online. They're like, they just incriminate themselves without even knowing it and it's like they're the easiest cases ever to be like seriously like what are you doing mm-hmm. well, <laughs> that, that happens little, all the time oh yeah uh, I, that little buddy of mine uh that edited my book and on the cover of my book it says edited by an innocent bystander <laughs> yeah now, he, he don't want anybody to know who he is he's always been a little bit scared you know he's a little bitty fella but he's a good friend of mine has been 50 years you know he said, you need pictures for this book. And I'm going, well, partner, we didn't take pictures. Yeah. You know, we didn't take pictures of our food. What the hell are we going to do that for? You know, man, that's what was this whole project. Things fell into place. And I, I'm hunting a sketch artist to draw some things for those old stories that happened a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. And dang, if, you know, I said, it's just a blessing. Uh, my wife worked with this woman and her daughter said, well, I think, Anastasia would be glad to do that. Well, that little girl that drew those paintings and those pictures in my book was 13 years old when she did it. Wow. She's just 15 now. She's an mm-hmm. unbelievable. Did the covers too, front and back. Yeah. Just amazing talent. But it's been like that all the way through this. And then I got my book done and then we put it up on ebook. Cause I tell you what, and it's it's just like you you fellas in Canada. I've sold some copies to Canada. I've got them to Newfoundland, you know, and other places, mm-hmm. but it's just so cost prohibitive. And I said, well, we're going to put this thing up on an ebook, hoping, you know, the people outside the country can get it reasonable. And now I've done this audio book and uh, that's something that's more affordable. And mm-hmm. for some reason, people like to hear me talk and I just can't <laughs> understand it because I still cannot listen to my book. I don't like the way I sound, you know, my recorded voice, it just irritates me. Did, what was the process of like doing the audiobook? Oh, that was just incredible. I literally, I'm, I'm a gym head. I'm in the gym three, four days a week. And I went to the gym that day and a guy had done a video for the manager there to promote the gym. And I just approached this guy. I said, you ever done an audiobook?" He said, no, but that sounds interesting. You got to understand this man, his name's Alan Campos. His day job, he's a concert level cello instructor i'm telling you he plays nine freaking instruments plus he can video and photograph and do all these things he said well words are a form of music and so we got a studio and they stuck me in there and he's out there engineering that thing and i tell you folks that's the hardest thing i ever did in my life i mean you think an old man could just sit there and read his book and record it well it don't work like that you know? Yeah, I've heard it's it's a process. It's quite the process of to uh, to record these audiobooks. I've heard it's it, uh, it's not easy. He recorded me in nine sessions, about thirty hours. Yeah, it took him one hundred and seventy five hours to edit it. Yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's, well, just in our in our language, like when we talk, we mm-hmm. we we cut out a lot of you know a lot of words. But when you're reading, a, when you're doing it for an audiobook, you have to make sure that you include all those words. Like if you miss the word the, then you got to go oh, back yeah. and start it over again. So, yeah. One, one of the funniest ones, I mean, it was about day four or five. And I was getting a little better. And they told me, you can practice the night before. So I'd read those stories I thought we were going to get to that day and read them out loud. I go out in my shop. I felt like an idiot doing it, but you got to do that stuff. Well, I sat down there that next day in that audio booth and I went through a paragraph and pot, I'm telling you, I nailed it. I knew I nailed it. And I went, yeah. <laughs> and Alan, he comes across on the microphone. He's, oh, Pat, 
that was freaking awesome. But we heard your stomach growl. You're going to have to do oh, it. No. <laughs> oh, my God, man. I wanted to cut my wrists, you know. <laughs> it, yeah, it was very difficult. But now that it's over with, it's been out for a couple of weeks. And the reviews I'm getting is just phenomenal. It's yeah. just phenomenal. And they, they're really enjoying it. And that that makes me, you know, really proud because y'all know I've got a mission that I'm after. You know, I mean, I I I worked my whole life. I uh, I had good jobs. I did my due diligence. I sent my kids to college, you know, and, and I'm retired. And I'm waiting for my wife to retire. And today's her birthday. She's got two more oh, dang yeah. years and then she's going to quit. And uh, I married a young one. But my my whole effort right now is, of course, y'all saw the back of the page of the book, uh, is my daughter's foundation. Yeah. I have every intention of leaving the book, the ebook, the audio book, and the copyright to the foundation. Because yeah. I, I want to help these kids, too. Yeah, and I, I was hoping we could get into that. Maybe we'll, uh, that's the Children Oasis Foundation, eh? Yes, sir. Yeah, maybe we'll, uh, maybe before we, we close off, we'll talk about that a bit. Uh, okay. Um, you know, the, the the funny story the story in the book, I mean, uh, is, uh, hey, Pete, how many people do you know have wrestled a deer? <laughs> Boy, I have. And... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and you, yeah. Know, and, you, and you know that stuff when it's going to happen, you know. I got that story in the book. I call it Road Hunting 101, kind of telling you how we did it. Mm-hmm. Well, buddy, the only place you shoot a deer from the roads in the neck, you hit that bone, he drops straight down. You don't have to hunt him. But, buddy, if you don't hit that bone and you just burn that muscle, he'll go over backwards. And I've seen it. I've seen it several times. And that day, that one went over backwards, and I just went, shit, you know. Before <laughs> Fred could say anything, I grabbed that pistol, stuck in my back pocket, and I went over that fence. Got to him, and I, you know, I, I looked like he was dead, and I grabbed them horns, and up he went. And then thinking <laughs> I, could, I was going to grab him by the horns and get him down, well, that's communism right there. That looked yeah. good on paper. It just didn't work. He's a hell of a lot stronger than you are. <laughs> So he snatched me up in the air and then banged me down. All I could do was just get my legs up around his freaking neck and hang on for dear life. And he drugged me through every cactus pile and tossy bush and had thorns in me. And he finally, he hit me once right above my belt line with that front foot. I just got a little sloppy. And I finally got to where I could figure I could keep his nose in my crotch. And I thumbed that dang little snub nose out of my pistol and stuck it in his ears, scrambled his brains. But... I was skin up pretty good after that, you know. Oh, oh shit. <laughs> Did I it, think that's it, something that people only talk about after a few beers and it's all talk. There's no yeah. actual reality behind it. Well, that's, that's just it. You know, I, there was no way I was going to try to write a book and compete with my good buddy, Charlie. But you read those stories. His, that, that, you know, he's a storytelling fool. And I've been listening to him for 45 years, you know. I had to do something a little bit different. So I wanted to, to add some of the things that I just thought were humorous and stuff to me and things that people did that you just wouldn't, wouldn't hardly believe it, you know? And yeah. I, I don't you can't make up, you know, yeah, you, you, you can't make that up. Yeah. So I'm, it, it I'm didn't, tell you. there's no way you're letting go of that deer. I know, but I was scared to after I got a hold of him because I know, you know, I mean, yeah. man, those things are hurt you, you know? But, you know, our dang deer aren't near as big as those northern deer that y'all are used to up there. Hell, a Saskatchewan deer is twice the size of a Texas deer, you know? Yeah, body size, yeah. Oh, yeah, they're huge, you know. And the biggest one I ever killed, but it was a, you know, it was a summer kill. You know, we needed some meat. It was in velvet. But field dressed, he weighed 205 pounds. And that thing was a monster. It's the biggest one I ever killed. That's, That's a big, big deer. deer. Yeah, he just not like those things that you see them hanging up north. Good grief! I said, look at them things. They look like elk, you know. Yeah, yeah, oh, they yeah. get uh, they get big, but yeah, they got to deal with a lot of predators and deep snow and cold weather, so they got to be big. Oh yeah, oh yeah. It just uh, like I said when I was a kid, I you know British Columbia and Alaska. I mean that if I could have figured out a way how to make a living up there, the buddy I'd have been gone. I left, I, that's where I'd be. To me, y'all live in some of the most beautiful places in the whole freaking world and yep. got all this wildlife right there 
at your fingertips. And I'm very envious of y'all. And then the fact that y'all guys, you know, because you've got the public land, you can go out there and be real hunters and just get after it and, and do your due diligence, do your scout and do your preparing and, and, you know, and and go after an animal, a particular animal Mm -hmm. down there on those big ranches, like on the Kennedy or the King and stuff. And Charlie tells him stories and people think he's, you know, exaggerating, but he's not. He could easily rattle up 80, 100 bucks in a day on that Kennedy ranch. Not a problem. Not a problem. Yeah, it was, it's. I can't rattle up one. Yeah. Well, you need a real, (laughs) you need a real good buck to doe ratio. Yeah. And if you don't have that ratio, they're not going to come. If there's one buck out there and five hot does, he's got something else on his mind. Yeah. He ain't coming to them horns. Mm Mm-hmm. But to me, whitetail hunting, that is the ultimate. When you can bring one into horns, you know, and then take him with a bow, oh, buddy, it just don't get no better than that. That's the yeah. biggest run in the world yeah. out there. Yeah, you know? it's uh, you got to connect, though. I had uh, I had a good one a couple weeks ago, and I missed it, 45 yards. Mm-hmm. We talked See, about I that. Come, I never could take a shot that far with my bow. Oh, you know, that, yeah, the oh. stuff's a lot more, you know, it's a lot better now, you know, and faster and everything. But man, I've, you know, when I used to hunt with stick bow, I mean, I've seen too many of them jump string, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. Uh, man, that's about 10, 15 yards, you know, you, you better be hoping the air gets there, you know. Well, yeah. even with the compound bows that are out there now, Kevin can tell you too that they still manage to jump that string. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Dang, that was smart. You know, and the and the big ones, the big ones didn't get that way being dumb. Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm all time, Charlie. You hear my last podcast? Yeah, I heard it. And yeah, I tell them about you know the musk glands and putting some tanks dough and heat on them behind you. And I said, Charlie, you gave away the best damn secret we ever had. <laughs> you know, and he goes, Well, hell, we ain't hunting no more. And I said, Well, that's right. You know, but. I helped my uncle Zenas did that 1915. He'd take that musk land from that bu- a buck that he had killed and save it. Then when he got rattling, he'd put those in a tree behind him. You kind of scatter them out about a 45 degree angle where that drift, his drift would kind of pick up some of that buck scent. Right. Because I guarantee you, if he's a big one, if he's a grinder, you know, five and a half year old buck, that's the buck that's going to circle you. He's going to circle you and he'll do it a hundred yards away because he, he didn't get big being stupid, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, that's how those big ones last. I I had a a hunting partner who showed me that and uh, we used to keep them and save them Mm -hmm. and I used to attach them to my backpack. And then I got thinking, see up here, it's a little different (laughs) because depending on the time of year, walking through the woods with that thing strapped to you and it's like, those grizzly bears are still out. Yeah. <laughs> Cougars yeah, you're... are out year round. Be like, <laughs> yeah. maybe I should just play the wind a little different <laughs> instead of hanging the dinner bell off my back. Yeah, you're an appetizer to a grizzly. Yeah. And I haven't yeah, used that... them in a few years. And <laughs> it's just like, yeah, maybe somewhere else, but I don't know about here anymore. That's what makes y'all's home such a, you know, such a beautiful place and a, such a, God, I dream to anybody that loves to hunt. You know, good oh. grief. You got it all. You got it all, you know. And like I said, I'd have been there years ago as a kid if I could figure out how to make a living. Yeah, we're I pretty blessed. Still, I can still remember standing in a blue spruce forest and just getting a lung full of that and just, man, ain't nothing much better than that. It just, it's just oh, it's... real pretty smell to me, you know. So what's it like for young hunters, like for the the next generation growing up in Texas and want to hunt it? It must be very difficult for them. Yeah, it's. Uh, I feel sorry for them. Yeah, I mean they're yeah. not going to be able to do like I did when I was a young fella because it's it's just turned into all money. You know, somebody's going to have to pay for a lease, and and most of the time, you know, you figure some guy leases three or four thousand acres, and he's got six eight guys on there, and they end up sitting in a box watching a feeder with a high powered rifle. Mm-hmm. And I just. You know, I just don't care for that. I like being out there on foot and getting in there with them. And but that's all that's left yeah. for. Them. Yeah, that's it's shame. getting just so expensive unless you know they've got the wherewithal to do it. You just you're not going to be able to hunt. You know. Yeah. Do you find the numbers are going? Do you find the numbers are going down? Do you think like with with hunters being able to actually well they're they're having to compete with that. That's one tough to afford. Two 
can't just go out and go for, you know, a walk or a hike or anything like that. Yeah. I imagine that the numbers of hunters are actually dropping. That just my I'm, I'm sure there is. I mean, but again, you know, that's that was born into us. That was yeah. mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're born to be hunter gatherers. And some of us have that urge worse than others. But I think these newer generations are losing a lot of that. You know, society don't want us doing it. You know, you get down to it. They just don't. They don't. They don't want us to do that. You know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, they, they're trying to change it. I hope it doesn't. I'm blessed. My grandsons, they got a place that they get to go hunting. Uh, there's a man down there and he's a bass landowner, got plenty of money. And he was related to the welders and, and I mean, they've got hundreds and hundreds of thousands of acres. And, and, and so my grandsons get to go out there and get them a deer every year. Oh, and uh, I, I, you know, I get a kick out of that, but of course some of it's high fenced and he's got some low fence too, but, uh, but those big ranches like the King and the Kennedy, uh, they're still low fence. They got the regular fence on them, but I mean, Good grief. And you got 400,000 acres sitting there. You know, a deer don't need to jump across the road, try to get out of the way. He just turn around and run as far as he wants to. Yeah. Just they for miles, life miles in there. Yep. In, you know, into the wilderness. You know. mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's too bad. Well, up here in Canada, I don't know. We might not have any guns left to hunt with the way, the way yeah. our government's pushing it. So it's, yeah. Well, they're pushing it down here too and everything, but. That said, I got, I just got to where I enjoyed bow hunting more. You know, yeah, it, was, yeah. it was a challenge and, and, uh, got to get close to critter. You got to think what you're doing. You got to be cognizant mm -hmm. of the wind and smell and everything. And it's just, to me, it's much more intense, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I enjoy that because it's that rush that we're after that adrenaline rush. It's yeah. just the one that, you know, when you have to look over your shoulder, the same time you're looking for a deer, that's even a little bit more rush. <laughs> that's why yeah. that was fun back yeah. in the day, you know. But uh, again, I don't, I don't want anybody ever even go try that anymore. It'd it, it tear me up. Yeah, get penalized like that. One, so, one thing you guys talk about, you and and Charlie too, is uh, is um, breaking the neck of a deer. Now I imagine, like you said, you don't you don't want that deer to run. So, but you guys must have been a hell of a shot. And this is coming in the time when there was no range finders either so and i know yeah. you, you you go there's an instance when you when you and uh i think you and charlie you actually have an argument over over a deer you ranged um that was that antelope oh the antelope yeah it was the buck, the antelope, buck antelope yeah 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 now charlie's you know he got a good eye for that kind of stuff too but, but hell i played golf you know oh yeah like I said, I knew that was a driver and a five iron. I can hit that damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's a long shot, but like I think yeah. it was what it was over four hundred yards of shot. Oh on yeah, it was about four fifty. But like <laughs> that's I said, a long ass shot, man. You know, and it was blowing. I'm telling you, the wind in the nose of that antelope was blowing thirty mile an hour, and and I was going to stick it out in front of his nose. And Charlie, no, that gum it, you know, Two feet in front of his nose. I said, "Ain't no." You said two feet, <laughs> and I shot. Of course, I didn't lead him enough, and I hit him in a damn punch. But down he went. But that's that story in his book and mine. He calls it a foot race with a pronghorn. It's hard to believe he did that, but he did do it. He ran that damn wounded antelope from four or five hundred yards deep in that place all the way to the fence and got him to lay down, wait for me to come back get him. <laughs> Something else. <laughs> You just you can't make it up, you know. Oh man, I I couldn't Im even imagine just like the time you guys must have had driving around and just like looking for deer and like just the bullshit going on and like just quite the we lifestyle. We had a lot of fun outside of our hunting and stuff because I you know I wouldn't hunt with him, you know, in the Kennedy and stuff like that trophy hunting. I just was not raised that way, you know. I, if you kill it, you're going to eat it, mm -hmm. and so. I just couldn't do that, but we got other things that we could do together. And, and 50 years ago, you know, a man didn't just walk up to another man, and offer his opinion about something unless he was asked, especially down that country where I grew up. I mean, that's a good way to get a fist in your nose real quick. You know, you stay out of another fellow's business. And, uh, but I knew what he was doing. He knew what I was doing, but we found other things we could do together too. He loved to bird hunt with us. And then we go bird hunting and, course we fished together down there on that laguna madre and wading in knee deep water catching redfish till you couldn't even drag them all you know we just had a ball together you know mm -hmm. but um and we just kept in contact all these years yeah i was cool. drawn to him like a moth to a flame because of his talent 
I mean, the man, you know, people just think of him about being the prince of poachers. But probably he's the best taxidermist I've ever seen in my life. Mm -hmm. And if I, yeah, I remember him talking about that, he's spent a thousand hours watching him mount birds, ducks, geese, quail, you name it, deer, whatever. I know exactly how to do all that stuff, but can I do it? Oh, no, I don't have any talent, you know. I don't, I'm not a visual or spatial person, so I can't picture it in my head. And, uh, but he just, it just impressed me, you know. I just, I've always loved it. I tell a little story when I was a kid. I was born in West Texas outside of Lubbock in a little place called Leveland. And when my mama, they'd go to town, there was a little hardware store. And that was one place where my mama and my sisters just turned me loose. They just turned my hands loose. Because in that hardware store, all the way down one side was nothing but North American trophies mounted. I mean, he had everything from moose to billy goats to sheep, you name it, you know. And then on the other side was nothing but Africa. Well, as a kid, three or four years old, I'm just staring at that stuff, dude. I just, but in the back of the place, there was a polar bear in a glass case standing up with his arms out like that, you know. And when it was time to go, they just walked back there because I was there with my mouth open staring at the dang polar bear, you know. And (laughs) and, uh, I just, like I said, I loved it all my life. You know, yeah. uh, wished I could have done something like that, but I've been very fortunate doing the things that I have done. Yeah. It's like I had a, a, a spirit pushing me around because partner, I come from a broken home. I, I was 10 years old and I went from the penthouse to the shit house. And uh, by the time I was 15, I knew good and well, I was walking a tightrope without a safety net. And all they did is just made me tough. They sucked it up. You know, I, you know, I was going to have to make it on my own and I did. And uh, I'm I'm proud of that. But the things I've got to do in my life, it's just it's it's phenomenal. And how does somebody, a kid like that, barely got out of high school, you know, and then go on to do the things I've done? You know, it's just I've been very blessed. You know. Uh, so so how long were you sitting on the idea of writing a book before you actually put pen to paper? And- oh, not too long. No, uh, it was literally it was that dead gum COVID. You know. Um, we all got locked down like everybody else did. And uh, and then here come that Southern wave. It was a uh, summer of 2020. Well, that summer wave kicked the crap out of this Texan. It got me. And uh, thank God I was in as good a shape as I'd been in, in 40 years. And, but I ran fever for 10 days and hallucinate and everything else. But I beat it. You know, hell, I donated convalescent plasma for nine months afterwards. But my wife's working at home, and her job is a reality TV show that I had to get the hell out of there. So I go out <laughs> to my wood shop. Well, I was fine until I ran out of wood. Now what am I going to do? You know, Charlie, said, damn it, it's time you write your damn book. Been after you write the book, write the book. And yeah. I said, well, hey, that's what I'll do. And I just sat out there with my laptop in my wood shop and started writing those stories down. And for, and, and for a couple of reasons, because I wanted to tell them all those men are gone. You know, they were, they, they meant a lot to me. And I wanted to tell some of those stories, but also I've always wanted to, to help my buddy Charlie a little bit too, you know, and I just wanted to, I wanted to validate him. Mm-hmm. And I think I did in the book. He's validated. I mean, that man didn't make that stuff up. He, he did it mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and a whole lot more. You know. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. And then halfway through it, then, uh, you know, we started thinking about this place where I am right now, the school and, and I thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe I can help. And so that's, yeah. that's why I did it. Yeah, it that's great. That's great. One, one, one more thing, uh, a question I got about, uh, and you explained it in the book, but then maybe we'll, we'll touch on that uh, Children's Oasis Foundation. You talk about making a, like how you guys used to pack your deer out. Is I'm just trying to visual it in my head. You guys used to make a deer pack. And I just, you have to explain it to me again. <laughs> Well, that's that was Uncle, my great uncle Zenus. You know, he taught Wayne how to do that. They didn't have pack frames back then, 1910. You know, and you take a heavy bladed knife. You, of course, you eviscerate your deer, and then you want to skin him one side while he's laying on the opposite side. You skin him, and then you pin that hide down where the you know the hair's down on the ground. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, then you can start taking your straps off. You take your quarters off, bone your meat, pile it over there. And then when you get down to it, we'd leave the hide on the rib section, just cut around it. Okay. And then I'd hack, that, I'd hack that off right at the spine. 
with a big heavy knife, just go right through those ribs. And then you got two clam shells, you know, with hide on both sides. Uh -huh. Well, I pile that meat in there and put the other one over it and just take some hide and cut strips and sew the damn thing shut. Make you a little pack, throw it over your back and take off with it. <laughs> you know, it takes a little time. Like I said in the book, I said, after you do it a couple dozen times, you get pretty good at it. <laughs> yeah. Like anything I imagine. I just, yeah, it's uh, it'd be something else to see. That's for sure. A deer. But, made uh, after, you know, after I started doing that, that first one, I, I tell a story. It's called once we're Zenus, you know, yeah. hunted. And um, after I did that once old school that way, well, guess what? I went and got me a pack frame. Yeah. It's no. yeah, a little easier. Yeah. I just wanted to do it once. You know what I'm saying? To be able yeah. to say I've done that like he did. You know, like I said, Uncle Zanus was a, he was an amazing man, you know, yeah. but, uh, and the trophies that he had in his house, oh, I wish to where they went. You know, he had, he kept 10 of them in his house that he was the most proud of. And I've seen them, you know, I don't know, four or five times, I guess. And now he's gone. I don't know where they are. But he was a taxidermist too. Hell, he probably had a hundred mounts out in his barn. Wow. You know, people didn't come back and get them or stuff, or some yeah. of them that he shot and just stuck them up there. But uh, I've never seen a collection like that. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's pretty neat. Some of those taxidermists are collections. And they, they were real deal stuff, man. You know, yeah. Zenus has got an eight point that I swear is the biggest eight point I've ever seen in my life. Wow. He is at least 33, 34 inches. He's got 20 inch G2s. This thing's enormous. It wow. looks like it's so big around. It looks like a freaking elk's horns. Yeah. And, and Zenas told me, he said, that's the biggest bodied deer he ever killed in his life. He didn't know how much it weighed, but he said it was by far the biggest one he'd ever killed. It's almost a, yeah. Did they ever score? Like it would be comparison to like the Hanson buckshot Saskatchewan. They just, they just never did that back then. You know, yeah. it's yeah. like taking pictures. Yeah, it makes people sick. I mean, when I got hunting with Fred there towards the last four, about four or five years of my career, Fred was the best there was. Fred Hornsby, that that was a wheel man, and when uh, he's behind the wheel, eyes over the fence, I knew we were safe because hell, I could run like a deer and jump like a gazelle back then, and I was sneaky as a coyote, and they wasn't going to catch me in there on foot, and they were not going to get to Fred out there on that road. Uh, the guy was just too savvy, too smart, you know, but. Uh, it, it, it we just we, we saw the dang horns off those deer and just throw them over there on a horn pile next to the burn barrels by the north side of the property we had a hell of a stack of horns <laughs> you know, but at the end of the day what are you gonna do with them you know yeah how many yeah. things do you need to hang your hats on and you can I, don't boil I, I don't have enough i know that <laughs> <laughs> well, you, can't, you can boil them for days they won't make good soup you know yeah so we just pitched them over there and hell people come out there. Can we get some horns? Yeah, go ahead, rummage through them and stuff. Yeah. I've heard stories of some taxidermists going out there and getting some of those better ones and remounting them, you oh, know, yeah. Yeah. and, and uh, selling them because people mm -hmm. will buy them. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, we didn't care because the rats were gonna eat them anyway. Mm -hmm. We just threw them out there by the burn barrels, you know. But it, yeah, like I said, it was a different time, a lot of fun, you know. Yeah, crazy. Crazy times, man. So what 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 was the closest? What was the biggest scare you had in getting shot and getting caught? Was there a time oh, when yeah. you were like, man, that was close? Oh no, that was without a doubt the story I call uh Uncle Mule. And it was my Uncle Mule, uh Amal Rule. And we were in Freer and we me and Wayne had done a job over there and we stopped by to see him and they went to drinking liquor, and that that's that'll get you right there, you know. They started getting brave, so let's go kill a deer. Well, we took off out west of Freer out 44 and got 15, 20 miles. Man, it was a damn good buck. Big old 12 point, about 24 inches. And Wayne had that 243 out the window faster than a cat could lick its butt and broke his neck. Now that truck I went, you know, I was over the fence. I told him, I said, don't give me 15 minutes. And I said, I'll have him here and underneath, you know. Well, it was probably 20 or so, and they come back, and everything looked good. Road was wide open. So I jumped the fence, sucked the buck out from underneath there, and Wayne helped me throw him in the trunk, and we got in the car. Well, we started driving back to Freer with that big old buck in the trunk. And then I looked up, and I could see that damn game warden coming from behind us. And I went, uh, I was thinking, what those guys do? How'd they draw attention to us? You know, Because I knew they didn't see me. you know. Mm -hmm. But they had turned around or something. And those guys in Freer, that country, you can get up on a little rise and see 20 miles. Right, yeah. And they'll sit there with big binoculars and watch you. 
Well, anyway, that fellow, here he come. And he turned the lights on, pulled us over. And I mean, my, my, my sphincter's in my throat. I mean, I'm caught. I knew we were caught, you know? Yeah. And uh, Mule said, let me get out. And he got out of the car and met that game order. And then they stood behind that trunk and they popped that trunk. I mean, we're caught. You know, we got the damn deer in there, you know? And he stood there and stood there and stood. I finally asked Wayne, I said, what in the hell are they doing? And about that time, here they come back. And that game warden opened that door up for Uncle Mule <laughs> to let him get in. And that's when I noticed it. I noticed that Masonic ring on his finger. Well, my Uncle Mule was a Mason. Oh, okay. <laughs> I watched my daddy all his life. He had that Mason ring yeah. on his finger. And like I said in my story, there was a particular friendly grip saved our ass that day because yeah. we were caught. He shut the door, said, y'all go on home. Be careful. Never said another word. We were caught. Now, there's no doubt about it. <laughs> but that's yeah. the closest I think I ever, you know. That's close. Yeah, the brotherhood. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I was the kind of guy that, man, I see one in the wrong place. I didn't let this, you know, I didn't let that guy get me in trouble. You know, unless yeah. I knew I could get him, I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to shoot him. You know? It was part yeah. of the game. You know, like I said, I wanted to retire undefeated, and I did. So yeah, yeah, that's good. That's I got good. That's awesome. I've lost Fred since then, but we were two of the ones that were. They just never did get their hands on. Yeah, we well, didn't uh, talk. They didn't know to look at us like they did some of them boys from Kingsville and Bishop, like Charlie and his friends. I mean, they everybody knew they were hunting and getting after them, you know, and they talked and stuff and. I just learned how to do that. You know, I just didn't do it. You know? Yeah, that's why I like the name of your book before the stories are lost. Because I mean, eventually they turn. That's all they are, right? It's uh, that's it's it. Just, men are all gone. Yeah, and uh, I know they're they're kids and stuff, and you know, and every everybody gets a kick out of it. I had a fella. I sold that book, a fella out of Corpus, and I didn't recognize the name. And he got a hold of me one day, and he said, Pat. <laughs> I know every person in that book, every name, every person. And I said, well, I'll be dang. His name is Mr. Waters, and he has a big furniture place over in Corpus. But he was born in Foul Furious and left there in 66 and went to Vietnam. And he literally, all those names of those, he knew every one of them. And so I, stuff like that was a big kick, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, I got a place down there that I sell the book at uh, – a Texas Grub Wagon. It's my cousin's place. He's in a book. Me and him, and he was about 15 with a nail guy that we cut in half with a trapper. That's all I had was a little two-bladed trapper to get him over the fence. But uh, all the locals have gotten to get the book and stuff, and it's just a real, a real thrill. And I, you know, I just I feel very, very blessed about that. But because they enjoyed it, because they recognize all those people in those places, and. They know it's the truth, you know, and uh, mm -hmm. it was just, uh, it was a different time, you know. Well, and it's been quite the ride, I, I, I imagine, for you. I mean, you've been on, now you've been on dozens of podcasts and, you know, you, you're kind of um, famous almost for, you know, for what well, you I, guys did. And Well, I, I, I don't want to be famous. I just want to, I want to help this charity. You know, and that's yeah. what I'm going to do. And that's what it's all about for me now. Yeah. Well, and you're going around about it the right way. And, and on that note, maybe, yeah. maybe, yeah, maybe, uh, maybe we could talk a bit about that. What, you know, give us a lowdown what it is and, and what it's all about. Well, that back page in that book, like I said, I, when I sent the book, I said the last page, is my favorite story. And, you know, I didn't write it. It's my daughter's. Yeah. And uh, she started 501C by herself. And it's called the Children's Oasis Foundation. She has a school called the Oasis Academy. Well, I'm that's where I'm sitting. This is where I office. I see those kids every day. But my daughters grew up looking at my niece in the back page there. And I have a 42-year-old nonverbal niece, lives with my 77-year-old sister and my mother that's 100, you know. And uh, it just piqued Ashley's interest. It just got her, and that's the only thing she thinks about now. She's so dedicated to it. And the beautiful thing is, for me, because I get to come here every day, I try to interface with those kids the best I can. You know, some of them are different levels, but I've seen so many remarkable changes in them. My daughter's got a gift. She can do something. There's a little girl here. Her name's Maddie. She's nonverbal. She's about seven. Never uttered a word in her life. Now I come in. Hi, Maddie. Hi, Maddie. She'll repeat everything I say. You know, nice. I mean, that's a start. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, absolutely. And, and that's uh, that's what I want to do. Yeah, 
That's great. And we have a, we have a real big dream, you know. And if this thing of mine does any good, or someday I find a billionaire that doesn't need all that money, realize they don't have U-Hauls behind the hearse, and he ain't taking it with him. We would like to build a home for for people with special needs, like my niece that outlive their caregivers, and that happens every day. Yeah. And uh, that's that's one of our dreams, and so I'm just jumped in there with her, and that's what I'm going to do. You know, that's awesome. And then have fun along the way. You know, yeah, but, that's great. Uh, so, yeah. so what can people do to help the foundation? Well, she always always <laughs> take a donation. That's for yeah. sure. We've had some. Uh, there's some great people around this area down here. Tell you real quick about them. They're a damn little biker bar over there in, in, in Santa Fe. They rough. These boys pretty rough. You know, I'm big Harleys and everything. Every year, they th- throw a festival for her. And how much they raised, baby, this year? $11,000. Yeah, $11,000. Wow. They raised. wow, that's great. You that's know, great. they just gave it to her. I'm telling you, most boys are a little bit nefarious and everything, but if they like you, they'll do any damn pearl for you. They're salt of the earth. Mm-hmm. They're just good folks, you know. And so we, we do fundraisers and stuff like that. And like I said, I hope someday to just give them this. Just let them have it. and hope it helps, too, you know. Um, I've been pretty fortunate in my life and got to do things. That I just don't know how it happened, but it did. One of these days I'm going to get on a venue where it'll be proper, where I can tell these stories, but the things I've got to do in my life is just phenomenal. And then nobody ever going to be able to do it again. Mm-hmm. I mean, good grief. I was 16 years old. My neighbor said, let's, uh, get start a light show. And, you know, it's 50 years ago, it was a hippie light show 52 years ago with the psychedelic lights. That's okay. I help you. And we got that stuff going, a low peck projector and flashing lights. And one day he called me. He said, hey, Pat, I got us a gig. I said, cool. You know, where are we playing? He said, the Stardust Roller Rink in Corpus Christi, Texas. Cool. What's the band? He said, well, dude, the band's the children. And we we don't get them. We're going to have to do the warm-up band, you know. And I said, well, that's cool. You know, I mean, hell, we, we hadn't done it before, you know, anything. So we get set up that day. And we started our little psychedelic light show for this little three-piece band. And then I went outside with them at the break and got to meet them a little bit. I'm not going to tell you what we did, but um, <laughs> we come back in. And you know who that band was? It was 1970. It was ZZ Top. Oh, wow. That's awesome. There you go. Oh, yeah. yeah. And if you listen to the Netflix movie about ZZ Top, Frank Baird, the drummer, said, Yeah, we even played in a damn roller rink in South Texas. Well, hell, I was there. You know what I'm saying? That's cool. I mean, just lucky stuff like that. You can't, yeah, you can't believe. Yeah, I quit outlaw hunting in 1983, serious about my work, serious about my family. And I got a hell of an offer. And they said, Come on out here and go to work here at NutraSuite, Augusta, Georgia. And I hell, I was vested in a retirement selling these. I wasn't about to leave. But, you know, when the man offered me that kind of money, I couldn't turn it down. Well, buddy, you know where Augusta, Georgia is? You know anything about Augusta, Georgia? Well, that see, that is Golf Central. That's where the Masters is, buddy. That's go. where Augusta National, that's the most exclusive golf course in the whole freaking world. Guess what? Bill Gates, he ain't never going to be invited to be on that thing. You got to have some cobwebs on your money to be to be a member. And they only got like 275. I was there for about five months and I was invited and I played Augusta National. Wow. And I shot 79. And I carry that tattoo right there on my damn chest that <laughs> reminds me of it. I mean, how lucky can a guy be? You know? Yeah, I just I feel very, very blessed. You know, someday I'll tell that story because the man that I played with, he was third generation. His grandfather was one of the original 30 founders of Augusta National. And in that clubhouse, there's a picture on his wall. Well, that man, that third generation member, about seven years after I played with him, he got booted. He got kicked out. They don't kick members out. They kicked him out because he was bringing Japanese over three at a time, charging them 10000 apiece, and he'd play around round of golf with them. Oh. He bought 30000 <laughs> They caught him, and they oh. kicked his ass out. And guess what? It made all the golf digests. Golf Digest, Golf Magazine, the periodicals, they all got articles about that guy. And that's I'll who I'll that up. Yeah, that's funny. Oh, he's crazy as hell. I mean, how's <laughs> the guy, you know? And, but that's one of those things. I was 62 years old when the girl said I could have the little tattoo, the logo of the, like it's on the shirts. 
this is yeah, Dad, you're getting old and you're gonna forget, you know, and you can go ahead. And- <laughs> I said, girl, I might forget when you were born, but I can forget every blow I get on the golf course. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. But anyhow, but yeah. I just said, I hope, I hope the audio book does good up there because I'm kidding you. I was thinking about the Canadian people as much as the people like I've, I've sold some books in New Zealand. Uh, Australia, South Africa, the people hunt, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's impossible to get them a book. The yeah. Well, we got, yeah, it out. is. We got two books here. Mm-hmm. We're going to be doing a giveaway and, uh, and uh, we're going to put, uh, you know, show notes up to your audio book and we'll put show notes up how they can get the book and stuff like that. So, but uh, yeah, it's I'm a little hoping- harder to get stuff up to Canada, especially you oh, know, with the duty. And, yeah. Yeah, anywhere tough. you come when you get out of the country, it's just it's crazy. Well, and the price of everything now too. I mean, it costs you. You know, the shipping nowadays is it's it's gone out of control. So, yeah. and um, I imagine up there it's kind of like Alaska. Man, it's got to be shipped a long ways to get to y'all. You know, and yeah, yeah. But sure. you get to wake every morning up, and you're living in God's country too, buddy. Yeah, you know, looking at that beauty, man. That it's got to be breathtaking. Yeah, there's a lot of oh, yeah. a lot of open spaces, so it's yeah. nice. Beautiful, beautiful place, man. Well, Pat, I want to thank you for for joining us on the show. I, I know we've Appreciate talked you. now for for a few months now about getting you on, and it's uh, you know the timing was right. So, uh, thanks yeah, it was really good. I hope you get that buck you saw. Uh, yeah, it's I, over. yeah, you'll be the second guy to know because if I don't show Pete, first of all, he'll never he'll never let me uh, live it down. So, yeah, yeah. no, sorry, I got to pull rank on you, Pat. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Well, I tell you what, it was it was my pleasure to be on. I, I like I said, I wanted this very much just because of the differences. But at the end of the day, we're we're both hunters, you know. Yeah, oh, I don't hit it hard anymore. But uh, God, I loved it, you know. And uh, and I like to see it continue for the younger folks, you know. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. That's what it's all about. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah it really is. It really is. Okay, you got anything and, to add, Pete? No, just want to thank you very much for coming on. Uh, your book kept me thoroughly entertained over a couple weekends of camping and stuff. It was a perfect book to bring out to the bush and and enjoy. Kept me laughing. And I quite a few people looking at me as I was chuckling along. And <laughs> that, <laughs> was, I got a real deal. good friend of mine in Georgia. His name's Michael Murphy, and he's a he's a hell of a guy. And when he read that book, he said he talked called me. He said, "Pat, you know what you got here." I said, what's that? He said, that might be the best hunting camp shithouse book ever. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> by the toilet, you know, and then pick it up, read you another story. And set it back down. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. Perfect. It's good stuff. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Pat. Well, thank you very much. Thank yeah. you. Go ahead. Bye-bye. Hey guys, I want to thank you again for tuning into the Focus Hunting Podcast. It's coming at you as part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective. Quick shout out to the sponsors of this show, Vortex Optics, the best in optics, period. AKU Boots, you it to your feet. Now, if you guys go check out the uh, show notes, um, you're going to find some promo codes. Use them, save a bunch. And uh, if you guys could please leave us a rating or review, we really appreciate that. And uh, until next time, love you guys. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. For even more content, be sure to watch the original films from HuntStand Presents on the Waypoint TV channel every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Visit waypointtv.com to learn more. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.